Good morning, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So including today, we're going to do 10 weeks on the nine fruit. And I would encourage you to, if you haven't already, go ahead and memorize Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's how we're going to start each message. And uh, who knows, we might even take a mic and put it right up to you and you will, no, we won't do that. <laughs> but it would be uh, wonderful for us to memorize as a group the fruit of God's spirit. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we want to live out the nine fruit. We realize that on our own, we are incapable of doing this, but empowered by your spirit, allow us to take incremental steps of putting these characteristics into our life, of growing in these characteristics. Father, give us a greater understanding of the fruit and how we ought to live them out. Guide our time today as we look at your inspired and errant word. We don't want to be, as James warns, hearers of the word only, but we want to be doers as well. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the beginning of a new year, it's kind of a tradition in our country, and in fact, a number of countries, for people to take on New Year's resolutions. Now, you guys look like a pretty good group. So you're probably going to beat the average American who will hold on tenaciously to their New Year's resolution until about January 15th and then give up. But if I've ever seen a February 1st crowd, you guys are it. <laughs> I mean, we are going to white knuckle this into the next month. And so I thought, you know, it might be helpful if I gave you some possibilities of some New Year's resolutions. So I went to the internet, the source of all wisdom, and thought, well, I wonder what resolutions are out there. They're not very impressive. The first guy has been looking for a job for quite some time. And so it hasn't gone well, so he's made two resolutions looking for a job. The first one is he said, I am no longer going to lead with, I have trouble with authority. And the second one is in that first interview, I'm not gonna ask, how much are you gonna pay me? I think those are pretty good for him. Then there was a gal, I think this was a little bit more serious. She thought, you know, my budget is really, really tight. And every morning, seven days a week, I spend $5.50 on my coffee. She added it up, it was several thousand dollars, which didn't fit her budget. So she is vowing not to spend that this year. Another vowed to stymie all hackers. And so he is going to change his passwords 
away from his first and last name into something else. That's probably pretty good. A fifth person had this as their resolution. It doesn't even make sense to me, but they vowed to only eat white snow. I'm speechless. <laughs> Yet another vowed to no longer buy unneeded stuff on eBay. I thought that was good until they added this. They found better prices on QVC. <laughs> we need to stop buying unneeded stuff. Uh, one gal making a resolution for all of us suggested no run on toilet paper. No 2022 toilet paper scare. Another individual, I love the first half, hated the second, said that they were going to pay off all their credit card debts by getting larger limits on new credit cards, rolling over, and then they can fill them up. Don't do that. We do do that in America. Don't do that. The proverb says we become a slave to the lender. And we do. Don't do that. Someone else made a vow to unfollow anything Kardashian. I think that's a good one. Live it out. I think one of my co-workers has vowed to honor Taco Tuesday all 52 weeks. And the bell does not count. And finally, I love this one. Honor this one. If you are in a Zoom call, wear the same amount of clothing as if you are in person, please, always. Well, those aren't very helpful resolutions, but the fruit are. God's giving us nine fruit. I don't think any of us can work on all nine at the same time. We can work on one or two. We don't need our spouse to tell us which one or two. We don't need our parents to tell us which one or two. We don't need to tell our parents which one or two. We can all go to the Lord and ask his spirit to guide us which one or two of the fruit can we work on, not just in the February, but through the year. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Well, I'm only going to look at a little more than half of them today, but we will look at all of them individually. The first fruit is love. It happens to be the word agape. This is the word that is the highest form of love in the New Testament. The New Testament has really five words that could be used. Agape is predominantly used in the Bible, not outside the Bible, because the standards are so high. It's a commitment love. It is a I will love you no matter what type of love. It is I will love whether someone is watching or not. I think of 1 John 4.8. It says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If we want to evidence God in our lives, we will love. To put it another way, is there enough evidence in my life that I am a Christ follower by how I love? 
And we're really probably not talking about loving Betty Ann, that's easy. Or loving my kids or grandkids, that's pretty easy. But we're talking about loving people who are not like me, who may not vote like I do, who may not hold the same values I hold. It's not that I need to compromise my values, my morals, my ethics, my beliefs, but I am to demonstrate love to those individuals who are not like me. That's what God has done towards ends. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I see this kind of lived out in the book of Galatians. If you know the book of Galatians, you know that there are really two overarching aspects of Galatians that are really tied together. It's what is and what is not the gospel. And the gospel is salvation by faith in Christ alone. His death, Jesus' death on the cross, as the payment of our sin, his resurrection, as evidence of life after the grave, and we believe in Christ. And yet there is a group called the Judaizers that are adding things to the gospel, specifically circumcision. And so Paul makes this statement in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And I think what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that there are bedrock doctrines, morals, ethics. Where God has spoken, we are to believe, we are to obey, we are to say amen. But there are other areas, Romans 14 areas, where God says very clearly, his spirit might lead some people, Christ followers, to do this, and other Christ followers to do that. In those areas, show charity, show grace, show love. We don't compromise doctrine, morals, ethics, but there are gray areas where God has convicted you, but there's not a book, chapter, and verse. You follow God's conviction in your life, but don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. That's living out love. I think of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then you get down to the 13th verse. And it says, now three remain, faith, hope, and love. Stop. Which would you say is the greatest? You know the answer. But if you didn't know the answer, only three remain, faith, hope, and love. You would choose which one? I'd have chosen faith. That's not what God chose. But now only three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. How important is it that we learn to love the unlovely? How important is it that we learn to love those who are not like us? We're not talking about compromise. We're just talking about love. It actually exceeds faith. Faith, hope, and love, three remain, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I do believe that accurate love has faith in it. Jesus makes that point in Matthew 22, 35 to 40. You remember, a lawyer came up to Jesus 
and said, Master, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, and your soul. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is likened unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two. So clearly, their love entails faith. But I'm still a little bit surprised, if I don't know the verse, that when we have faith, hope, and love, God said love is above the others. This is an important attribute. Now let me make a little caveat. Within the last couple weeks, uh, somebody called me up, very sincere, very well-meaning. Didn't like something I said in one of my messages, (laughs) not very surprising. And then said this, you know, God is a God of love. And I like to think of God as a God of love. And you said that God doesn't allow this moral act. But God is a God of love, so he must. That's a misunderstanding of love. First, what I said God doesn't like, he's told us seven times, three in the old and four in the new, that it is unacceptable to him. So God already spoke on the issue. We can't redefine what God says just because we're going to call him a God of love. He is a God of love, but that doesn't mean he gives up morals and ethics. But second, it's a misunderstanding of love. If I really love somebody, I want them to understand how to live, how I am to live, how they are to live in a right standing with a holy God. And we don't live in a right standing with a holy God by reorienting his morals, his ethics his theology. We don't compromise because that's not love. It's not love towards God, which is the first and preeminent command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And it's not loving our neighbor as ourself. It's actually loving ourself better than our neighbor because we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be attacked. We don't want to be belittled. So actually, when we reorient what God says so that we are politically correct, we're loving ourselves more than God and more than our neighbor because God demands obedience and our neighbors need to know what God says. Well, the first fruit, maybe a fruit that some of us need to put on is love. The second fruit is joy. Joy is an interesting one because we sometimes confuse happiness and joy. It's not that the Bible is against happiness. Euphrano is a biblical word. Happy is a biblical word. In the Proverbs, we're told to have happiness as long as it's legitimate. God is not against happiness, but happiness comes from happenings. Happiness comes from circumstances we are happy maybe if we got a new puppy. Or we're happy if our football team wins a title. Or maybe you uh, love the University of Wisconsin and you were happy a week ago when the volleyball team won a national championship. Happiness comes from happenings. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not the word joy, kara. Joy is one of two words in a row that have to do with the sovereignty of God. Joy is a settled confidence that even if I have a biopsy, God's in control. 
that even if a loved one passes away, God will reunite us if we both know Jesus. Joy is a belief in Romans 8.31 that if we know Christ, God is for us. It's a belief in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good, two conditions. All things work together for good for those who know him and are those who are called according to his purpose. If I know God, I have a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if I'm walking with God, that even things that are beyond understanding, God is working them for good. And when I get to heaven and maybe have the opportunity to understand the backstory, I'll say, oh, man, I am dense. How did I not get that? You, God, were working those things for my good. I didn't even understand it. Praise you. That's what joy is. It's a resolution that God is working for his people. Love, joy, peace. Peace is the Greek word arene, or in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word, you know, shalom. Now, it was interesting. Uh, a friend of mine sent me something yesterday, and at the bottom, it had a definition of shalom. And, man, I'm telling you, she was reading my notes. It's almost word for word. And this is what she wrote, and this is what is actually in my notes. If you ask somebody, what is peace? They're probably going to define it this way. The absence of war or the absence of a trial or tribulation. And Irene Shalom covers that. Barely. You'll find that in the Bible. It is a situation in which Irene or Shalom is used. But that's not its dominant usage. The dominant usage of peace is a sovereignty word that God will hold things together for us. I think of it in a Trinitarian formula. Now you think about the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the proper order. That's the way you say it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But for a moment, just theologically to make a point, I'm going to go Son, Father, Holy Spirit. How do you have peace? You got to know Jesus Christ. Last week, I had the privilege of preaching alongside Andrew. And we were preaching from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a child is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How do you get that peace? Will you remember the setting? Isaiah is writing from 739 to 701 BC. He's writing in a time period in which Israel is the 10 northern tribes and Judah is the two southern tribes. And for the last 200 years, they have hated one another. He's writing at a time in which Assyria is the big behemoth. Everybody is terrified. And so Israel does the unthinkable and makes an alliance with Syria. And Judah does something even more unthinkable and makes an alliance with Assyria. And they're trying to have a political solution to living in the land of the panic. They're terrified. They're panicked. 
And so they think, oh, if we can only get this right politically, if we can only get this right militarily, then we're going to have peace. And you remember what Isaiah says in verse 2, the people are walking in darkness, but they've seen a great light. Verse 6, unto you is born this day, or I guess that's Luke 2, but unto us a child is given. It's the light, the child, it's Christ. How do you get peace? You got to know the light. How do you get peace? You got to know the child. You might be walking in darkness. You might be living in the land of the panic. But if you want peace, you got to know Christ. That's where it starts. We got to come to the end of ourselves. We have to ask for forgiveness of our sin, our attitudes, actions, thoughts, motives, inactivities that are outside the will of God. And someone needs to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death. Jesus died on the cross for us. They were looking forward to the Redeemer. We're looking back on the Redeemer. We all are saved through faith in the Redeemer Christ. And we ask Christ to come in, to forgive, to cleanse. So how do we get peace? First, we've got to know Christ. But second, when we know Christ, we've got to focus on the Father and his word. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. We live in the land of the panic. I don't know what your panic is, but you live in the land of the panic. It could be politics. It could be finances. It could be jobs. It could be a pandemic. It could be a virus. Everything is the land of the panic where we live. And if I'm just feeding my soul with all the panic around, all the news around, I'm not going to have peace. What does Isaiah 26.3 say? Who gets peace? Those whose mind are stayed on thee. So I need a new balance. It's not that I want my head in the sand and I don't want to know what's going on. But if the majority of my time is learning about the panic from all different perspectives, but I'm not exceeding that with learning about my God, I'm not going to have peace. You've got to know Christ. And the one whose mind has stayed on thee is the one who's going to have peace. And finally, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You think about the disciples towards the end of Jesus' earthly life. He said, I'm going to the cross. They didn't really understand that. And then I'm going to leave you physically. They didn't quite understand that. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, when I leave, I'm going to send to you the paraclete, the comforter, the one who gives peace. Let me read out of John 14, 26 and 27. But the helper, that's the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have given you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you? If you want peace, it's not what the world's going to give you. But God has said, know Jesus. Keep your mind focused on God and his word. And if you need some strength, the Holy Spirit's here. We have the privilege, we have the joy of asking the Holy Spirit to give us peace, to calm our hearts, 
I might live among the people of the panic, but I don't need to be a person, a person of the panic. I can have a confidence in the Lord. Maybe for some of us, that's the fruit that we need, the fruit of God's peace. The fourth fruit is patience. It's the Greek word macro thumia. It's a compound word. Macro simply means long. Thumia, you can hear the word thermos, heat. So long heat, keeping my heat a long time. In other words, I don't need to say what's on my mind. I don't need to make a point. I don't need to win an argument. I don't need to be right. I can work on getting right. That's what patience is. Patience doesn't need to offer a piece of my mind that I can't afford to give. It doesn't need to offer four-letter words. It doesn't need to offer the twins. It doesn't need to offer revenge. It believes in Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I, the Lord, will repay. That doesn't mean we're doormats. But it does mean that God is just, God is right, and God is our defender. We don't always have to defend ourselves. We don't always have to win or make an argument or prove a point. I want to illustrate this in the life of a gal named Jen. Not a colorful story. It's just a true one. Jen was in a checkout counter. It might have been a grocery store or Walmart. I don't remember now. But um, she drew the short end of the stick. And the gal, it could have been a guy, but it was a gal this time. Uh, it was her first day on the job. And she was a checkout lady. I don't think anyone had ever trained this gal. And she had no idea where the barcodes were, so she'd pick up an item and flip it. And if you've ever checked yourself out at Walmart, I have now great respect for those guys and gals who are checking me out. I can never find the barcode. You know, after a while, I just decide, do I really want this thing? I don't know where it is. I'm not taking that one either. <laughs> I mean, it's just annoying, right? And so Jen has this person in front of him that probably is buying for a small army, and it's taking forever and ever, and she's holding her, her tongue. And then it's finally her turn, and she's buying for a week or two. And, and this gal, I mean, she's flipping everything around, looking for the barcode. It's taken forever, and she's patient. And then another client or customer comes, and you know, you, get, you take one of those, those black little bars, and you put it between your stuff and the next person's stuff, so when the cashier gets up to it, they know to check you out, to total you out, pack you up, and you're on your way before they get to the next one. And so she put that little black thing, and finally this, this poor gal, who clearly wasn't trained, gets through everything. Then she picks up the black thing, and she's looking for the barcode. She wants to scan the thing. Now, what would you have done? I mean, you've been there forever and ever. Hey, moron! I mean, what would you have done? Jen said, you know... I don't think I'll be taking that today. Well, I'll just leave that here. And she checked out. That's peace. That's patience. That's holding one's tongue for a long period of time. I wonder what marriages would be like if we had more patience. I wonder what parenting would be like if we had more patience. I wonder what being a child growing up in the home would be like if as a child we have more Patience, it might be one of those fruit that, that God wants to develop in some of our lives. Well, I'm going to skip 
kindness, goodness, and gentleness. We're coming back to them. Remember, we have nine weeks. Uh, I'm probably doing the ones that, uh, I'm skipping the ones that I'm not, or the ones I know I'm preaching. I'm doing some of the ones that my coworkers are preaching because I'm getting the good stuff, and then they can follow up. Uh, but the seventh is faithfulness. That's the Greek word pistis, or later on in some passages, it's pistos. Faithfulness essentially means that I'm going to do what is right, even if you're not watching me. I'm going to do what is right because it's right, not because if I do it, you're going to catch me. I love the way uh, faithfulness is implied in James 5, verse 12. Let me read it to us. James 5, the 12th verse. But above all, my brothers, my sisters, Christ followers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. That's what a faithful Christ follower is like. When a faithful Christ follower says, I'm going to do something at work, she or he, to the best of their ability, does it. When a husband or wife says to their spouse, I'm going to be home at XYZ time, as long as it depends on them, they're going to be home XYZ. If someone says, I'm going to help with this sporting team in the community or this artistic group in the community, they're going to show up. They're going to be on time. They're going to put the effort into it. They're going to do what they say. A faithful person who says, that I'll serve in the nursery or one-way club or Gem 180. They're faithful. They're going to show up. They're going to do it. They're going to put their effort into it. A faithful person, as far as it depends on them, it doesn't always. When a faithful person says, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, I keep you only to myself, so long as we both shall live, that person is going to stay in that marriage to the best of their ability. Did you know that faithful is actually a name for Jesus? We have 300 names for God. Faithful is one of them. Let me read from Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. If you and I are faithful... We are imitators of Christ. Isn't that what we're called to do with each and every day? So maybe one of the fruit that we want to apply into our life, maybe a resolution for the next 10 weeks or 52 weeks, is God, build in me faithfulness. Well, the last one we're going to look at this morning is enkratia. It's self-control. I know that's how you define it. I know that's what the word means, but I I think of it a little bit differently than self-control because I want something better than Jeff's self-control. I need God's control because it's the fruit of the Spirit. So God's control in and through me allows me to control illicit passions or illicit desires or illicit, and you can fill in the blank. That's what self-control is. That's what we're asking God to do. Build in us a steadfastness to say no to what is sinful. Let me offer a few thoughts, a few categories. The first is the battle of the tongue. When we want to uh, 
give somebody a choice word or two. Maybe part of self-control is memorizing some passages that talk about what ought to come out of our mouths. I think of Ephesians 4, the 29th verse. It says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Part of putting on the fruit of the Spirit is not only praying that God's Spirit works through us, it's memorizing Scripture and being able to cite those Scriptures to ourselves during times of weakness. Similar to that is Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You know, sometimes we'll be around family or friends and they'll make a statement about us and we don't agree with it at all. And we can decide, do we respond with rash words that are like swords thrust or do we respond like the wise and offer words of healing? It's a challenge for me and a challenge for you. Another area of self-control is to make sure that I'm worshiping the creator rather than the creation. This is a time in which we get a lot of things. So we want to make sure we're always worshiping the creator, not the creation. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Possessions, for the most part, are morally, morally neutral, ethically neutral. But if we start being controlled by what we have or controlled by what we want and we don't have, then we're in idolatry. We want to worship the creator, not the creation. I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other or you will love the other and hate the one. No one can serve both God and money. Part of self-control is to make sure I'm worshiping the creator, not bowing before the creation. Then there's the battle of our thought lives. I think this is a battle for everyone. Maybe one's thought life is lustful. Or maybe one's thought life is fearful. We live in the land of the panic. Or maybe one's thought life is just not honoring to the Lord. Then we remind ourselves and we cite Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, sisters, Christ followers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Again, the nine fruit, they're not just gripping hard, white knuckle, I gotta do it all by myself because they're the fruit of the Spirit. So we ask God's Spirit to empower us to turn. We read the words of God's Spirit from Scripture, memorize them, cite them at appropriate times. We might even use other sisters and brothers in Christ to hold us accountable, and we ask God to develop the fruit. Over the next nine weeks plus this week, we're going to do nine sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. 
And I think it would be wise for all of us to look for one or two and say, Lord, are these the ones you want to develop in me? It's not that all nine aren't critical. It's not that any of us have achieved any of the nine we have not and will not short of glory. But there might be a couple that we say, you know, that's a clear area in my life where God needs to develop. Lord, empower me, turn me, change me, develop that fruit in my life. Give me some scriptures to memorize in times of weakness. May I live out your fruit. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we're thankful for the nine fruit. We're thankful that you don't leave us to ourselves to figure them out. You don't tell us that we have to do them on our own, but in fact, you empower us by your spirit. You give us your word that we can hide in our hearts to sight during times of temptation and weakness. Father, give each of us a fruit or two to develop by your spirit for your glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Happy New Year.